a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. By the way, thanks for noticing. If you're one of the few people who noticed, hey, uh, you haven't been doing a show for a few days. Yeah, it's, you know, seems about once every winter, along comes a cold and it just goes straight for my throat. And that's exactly what happened last week. So I lost my voice for a couple of days. I learned that, you know, you don't talk your way out of such situations. You have to actually sit and be quiet, which for me is not an easy thing. But uh, but here I am. I'm back, feeling mostly better. I may you may hear me wheeze or hack or cough a little bit uh, throughout the course of the show. It's just part of the healing process. But there's uh, there's some very important stuff to cover today. So let me start by thanking my sponsors. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and Borelli.com. That uh, this last sponsor, by the way, Borelli.com. If I have friends who are into the shooting sports. This is a great place to look for and pick up some really great deals. You know, I'm talking daily specials that uh, you can save a whole bunch of money. I've been very happy with what I've seen on there. And uh, as an affiliate for them, every time you make a purchase through them, they in turn uh, help to support my program. So with that in mind, let's dive in. First of all, this is the place to revel in wrong thinking. By that, I mean this is the place where people can come who are just not comfortable or maybe you're even turned off by the narratives that uh, come at us from most of the approved or authoritative or mainstream media sources. There's a big difference in what uh, you're hearing from mainstream media sources versus what you hear from other sources such as myself. And I realize I'm just one voice of many, many voices out there trying to help make sense of it all, which, which means this is the, the down and dirty. The message I have is not for everybody. I'm not trying to tell you, you're not good enough for this. You're not sophisticated enough to understand the, you know, the lofty way that I think. I'm a pretty simple guy. But because I'm a pretty simple guy, I tend to think of things in simple terms and sometimes speak of them in pretty blunt terms. And that can be uncomfortable. If, if, that's, uh, if you are not in a place where you're ready to confront uncomfortable truths, this is probably not a program that, uh, that you will enjoy. Now, let me tell you who I am talking to, though. And if you recognize that uh, this, yeah, that's, that's where I fit, then uh, you have definitely found the right place. I am speaking to those people who, uh, through no fault of their own, have recognized a call in their life. Now, what do I mean by that call? You know, I don't know if I can quantify it as, uh, well, it's exactly this. This is how you know. This little chime goes off and a light appears in the sky and a voice says to you, you are called. No, it's usually not anything like that. In fact, I think it's different from person to person. But there are many of us, and I include myself in this, you know, in, in this group of people who have heard a call, who were just, are, we're living our lives, we're going about uh, doing the best we can, and, you know, maybe even enjoying the ride a little bit. Hey, life is pretty good. There's a lot to appreciate here. But at some level, we have this recognition, and maybe it just starts as just a nagging thought in the back of your mind that... There's something more that I need to be doing. Okay, it's, it's not you know, like I'm sitting here groveling in inadequacy, but I'm just, I'm almost certain that there's something more that I need to be doing. 
And we look around us and we think, well, you know, does anybody else hear this too? Is anybody else feeling this? Or are they, is anybody else feeling that drive to, to seek something? There's something greater. And as you start to, to really pay attention to it, you start to realize this apparently is a frequency that only I can hear. Now, at this point, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's just mental illness, Bri. <laughs> that's all you're dealing with. You're just out of your head. So, <laughs> you know, good luck with that. But the truth of the matter is, when you are being called, you're being called to step up and to fulfill the purpose for which you were brought into this world. Now, that sounds pretty lofty. That, 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 that sounds heroic, right? Well, it should. Because every single one of us is on a hero's journey. And I, I'm not saying this in any way to, to lessen, you know, the efforts of those who, who haven't yet caught on or have any, you know, have no desire whatsoever to even listen for that call. But a, a large majority of people will go through their lives never hearing that call or recognizing it for what it is. And it's not because they're lazy and it's not because they're dumb and, you know, evil and they just, you know, they're, they're just passing things. by. the fact of the matter is there are a lot of things that keep us distracted and it has to come at a point where, where you have, have reached a point in your own development that you recognize there's something more that I could or should be doing. And that little mild discomfort, that first of all, it's just that thought that's tickling at the back of your brain. It grows as you start to recognize the call. And that puts you on a journey to kind of figure out what it is. What, what am I supposed to be doing? Why am I hearing this? Why am I feeling this? And if you haven't read Joseph's stories, you know, the hero of a thousand faces, it, it really clearly outlines that whole hero's journey. You see it portrayed in movies, you read about it in literature, but it's a very real thing and it happens in people's lives. And essentially you are called out from whatever it is you're doing in your life to become something more, something that only you can become because it's very uniquely tailored to you. Now, see, right now, there are people going, oh, yeah, this is a little too metaphysical. Sorry. I'm out of here. See ya. That's okay. But for those who have heard and, and recognized that feeling and wondered, gee, what do I do? How do I act on this? I can't give you exact answers because, after all, it is your call. But what I can do is give you encouragement. And first of all, clarify, you're not crazy. You're not uh, just imagining things. This is something that's extended. I believe it's extended to everybody. But I also believe that we have the choice whether or not we listen to and give heed to that call. But those who do answer that call, they find themselves called out from the comfort zone of their life and where everything is just simple and easy. And there's a time where they have to go forth. And, and, and the first thing they encounter as soon as they feel like, man, I need to do something. I need to do something more. Maybe it's, I've got to go back to school. I've got to learn a, a trade or I've got to learn a skill or... I need to gain understanding about something. Most of the time, the people around them are going to tell them, hey, you're nuts, or that's a midlife crisis. Why don't you just go buy a convertible or something like that? You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be called out. You're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to encounter tests and traps and trials. You, you will have mentors that will come into your life. And some of them will be the people who hold the answers to help you get to whatever it is you're trying to uh, become. You'll have helpers, but you'll, you'll ultimately face what's called an ultimate test. And I can't tell you what that test is going to look like. Again, it's different for every single person, but I can promise you it will be a moment in which you feel 
as alone as you will ever feel in your life because it's going to it's going to feel like it is me against the entire universe and you have a decision to make will i continue on in this quest or will i you know give up and go back to start which is what most people do by the way just understand this is not a one time thing it happens over and over in our lives but for those who stand their ground who absolutely say, I will not yield, or at least I will not uh, give up on this quest. And I believe, you know, for me personally, I believe part of that is is learning to to submit yourself to God. But not everybody believes in God. So I'm just going to say, when you reach that point where it's your ultimate test, you against the universe, and you say, I'm staying the course, that's when the universe, the entire universe shifts and accommodates you. And you accomplish whatever that goal is, whatever that quest is, suddenly you've done it. And from there, you go forward in life. You're better equipped to help others who are on similar journeys. You are better equipped to fulfill whatever it is that you are supposed to be doing. But again, I'm going to warn you, that doesn't mean then the cycle has ended and, you know, well done. Game is over. Nope. You just leveled up. And you can start anew. Because after all, that's really kind of what life is about, right? It's about becoming the best possible version of yourself. And as the world continues to spiral out of control around us in so many ways, I happen to agree with a, with a podcaster by the name of Andy Frizzella. Now, if you can't handle profanity, I do not recommend listening to his podcast. He speaks with a very fluent uh, uh, accent in, in profanity, but the man speaks a ton of truth, which is why I like to hear what he has to say. I let the bad words bounce off me because I want to hear what he has to say. And one of the things he says is the most revolutionary thing you can do as an individual is to become the best version of yourself possible. Become a truly awesome person. Now, he's talking primarily about your character. It's not about, well, I can bench press 500 pounds, so I guess that makes me pretty awesome, doesn't it? It would make you pretty awesome, by the way, at least in my eyes. But it's really about becoming the most refined and best version of yourself and that is truly heroic. So, if you're, uh, if you're still with me, if I haven't scared you away, let's continue on that hero's journey. Part of it is understanding the world around us. I've got some great articles I'm going to share with you in the uh, upcoming segments. So if you do me the honor of uh, staying right where you are, we'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's dive right in. I'm of the opinion that being able to think rationally in a time where everything is in commotion actually counts as a kind of superpower. So if you have that ability, my hat is off to you. That's, I think that's, I don't think it's very easy to do. And I feel like I've had years of practice and I, yet I still sometimes wonder, okay, am I seeing this clearly? Am I thinking rationally or, or are my emotions or my feelings starting to overtake what I'm understanding? Got a great article here from Todd Hayen writing for offguardian.org. Right or wrong, I'm sticking with what I believe. You're probably going to recognize we, we see this a lot these days. Todd asks, what is it with this oddly stoic response from the sheep side of the debate? 
I'm hearing more and more sentiments. It's, I don't care if you're right. I'm sticking with my stance. And he asks, what is that all about? Like a captain of a ship defeated in battle, ship sinking, standing at the bridge, sword sword drawn. Damn you bastards! I'm going down with my ship. And sure enough, he does. Shark food. Todd's point is everyone is a sore loser these days. Now he says there used to be a time when defeat was part of life and a person learned from their mistakes or failures. Now, everyone gets a prize just for participating. Now, likening it to the vaccine controversy, he says the jabbed want their prize and damned if they're going to back down until they get it. I was loyal to the cause all the way to the end. So he says down they will go in their ignorance, arrogance, and stubbornness. Too bad. As cliche as it is to say, we are indeed in this together. But he says the sheep are not the enemy. They may have had weaknesses that make them responsible for this crap show, but they didn't create it. And they got nothing for being loyal to their puppet masters, that's for sure. In fact, he says, these poor folks are our brothers and sisters. We are ready to welcome them back to the human race with open arms. But that is impossible if they continue to swear allegiance to the enemy. In other words, they have to put their swords down at some point. Todd Hyen says, it doesn't seem like they're all that willing to do that. In fact, at this point in the game, he says, we've just been enjoying the halftime show. But he says, I think as the deeper winter sets in, the real game will continue. And what is this odd sheep psychology, though? I'm not giving up no matter what. He says, I still remember as a kid in post-war America, even 20 years after World War II, we were still as kids mesmerized by it. A favorite male pastime was playing war in the backyard. Sometimes we had plastic military-style M1 rifle toys, but most of the time we just used sticks or even imaginary weapons. Certainly the grenades were only air bombs. But what seemed to be the most common occurrence was to clearly blow a kid away as he ran with no cover across the open expanse of your backyard, and he'd keep running. You're dead! You're dead! And most assuredly the response was, No, I'm not! You missed! But that's what you get for playing with imaginary bullets and grenades. Death is subjective. Now, he says, there is indeed this variety of stubbornness among the ill-informed. They chose the wrong team, plain and simple, and it's embarrassing and shameful to admit that. Getting killed in a game of war for a small boy is also shameful, so if there are no real reasons to be dead, why not deny it? You missed! My word is as good as yours. But Todd Hyen says, my gut tells me there is more to this than that. And this is where it gets scary. He says, there seems to be a strange psychological thing taking place here. Yes, It is related to a cult member's loyalty to their Christ-like leader. And he says, I would say it's the same, except this isn't a loyalty to a person like the German infatuation with Hitler during the 1930s. Is it like a loyalty to a concept or an idea? Close, but even that doesn't really ring true. It feels more like they've been programmed to believe something that they can't even describe or define. Now, he he says, I was very pleased when Matthias Desmet's book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, came out. He attempted to explain just what I'm talking about in psychological and social terms. And I bought into that for a while, and I still do, until I can prove my own forming hypothesis. Desmet explains his mass formation in terms of environment, both physical and spiritual, creating a perfect breeding ground for manipulation by a nefarious force, such as a government or an elite group of people. Now, his explanation does make sense, and he says, I would add Dr. Mark McDonald's alterations to the theory, and even Dr. Robert Malone's idea that this mass formation is a form of psychosis. But he says, there's something still niggling at me regarding all of this. I can't really put my finger on it. 
the people I've encountered that stick with their conventions are not very smart about it. They're not even very passionate about it. They don't shove evidence in your face or rant and rave about the virtues of the medical prowess of the vaccines and the ultimate dangers of alternative treatments like ivermectin. They typically just spit at you and tell you you're a science denier or a selfish schmuck. There's very little science or logic or even evidence behind their loyalties. In fact, he says you can't even get them to explain to you what they believe other than when the booster comes, I take with a bit of zombie dullness in their eyes. And he says, at times, it is uncannily creepy. So this is a long shot, he says. I agree, but it seems I'm not the only one who's wondering about this stuff. He says, to my surprise, I've recently seen news stories as well as videos about strange personality changes due to various elements found in the vaccines. In fact, he says, I belong to a Facebook group titled Died Suddenly Worldwide. And there have been several threads with hundreds of comments about this very topic, all of them pointing to the jab as the source for these brain alterations. With all the talk of zombies and the like since this insanity started, who knows? Now, he says, I do think this, is, this idea is food for paranoia. The impression that the, shoe, the shrews rather have lost their marbles is rampant. Consider the uh, CSPO's suggestion in Ontario, that's the College of Physicians and uh, Surgeons in Ontario, that the vaccine hesitant be psychologically assessed. The CSPO has rather energetically taken a few steps back from this, but he says, be aware, the charge is fundamentally correct. After this assessment, the patient could be referred to a psychologist or immediately put on psychotropic drugs by the family physician. You understand what he's saying here? Claiming one side or another in a debate as being insane is a rather common tactic to bring veracity to the accusing side's position. But he says, what I'm describing here, however, seems quite different. I'm observing personally what I've presented here, and quite frankly, he says it's giving me the willies. People who lose their rational thinking have been known historically to do rather atrocious things. And they do these things without a flinch, as and if they are not the doers, they look the other way while the others are doing. So there's no point in trying to put a scale on this capability to commit atrocities. Once you lose reason, you lose it all. Denying the dangers of the vaccines with ample evidence that they are certainly dangerous suggests a loss of logic reasoning. It's no longer a matter of an individual making a subjective choice. And he says once a person loses logic reasoning, there's no telling what they're capable of doing. Or thinking, millions of people were shoved into gas chambers during World War II, and most common citizens didn't blink an eye. Now, he says, don't tell me they didn't know something fishy was going on when suddenly everyone Jewish went missing in their neighborhood. And certainly the thousands of military in charge of the exterminations didn't blink an eye either. Humans are capable of this insanity, and losing the ability to think rationally is the first step toward this behavior. Needless to say... As he mentions above, the sheep will point the finger and say, you're the one, if ever accused. So who's to say what the real skinny is on all this? Todd Hayen says, look, I guess we just wait and see what happens. So far, this, rack, this lack of rationale, rather, is not present in every jabbed person I've encountered. But that statistic may not be in place for long. So get out your CDC handbook on zombies, read up, and be prepared. Now, that may seem like a stretch to some. I get it. Uh, by the way, I'm including a link to this in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. But I have heard other people, and I mean, I'm talking people whose opinions I respect, wonder aloud, is it possible 
that uh, that there's some kind of uh, alteration to a person's thinking or some kind of brain shift that could be a possible side effect of having, you know, taken the jab. I don't know the answer to that. But I do think it's a fair question to ask. Not because, you know, uh, it gives us a reason to pick on the vaccinated. I do come from the, the school of thought that says, yes, even if they were really snotty and demanding that you and I be cast out from society for being unvaccinated, they are victims more so than instigators. The instigators are the people in power who are saying you either take this or else. So I think we need to be willing to show a certain degree of compassion. I certainly don't wish this kind of ill on anybody. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I didn't waste any time getting into the heavy stuff today, did I? This is what happens when I'm silent for a couple of days. Look out. (laughs) I got a lot to say and uh, not a lot of time to do it. So I've got a gem that I want to share with you. I know that uh, none of us wants to believe on an individual level that, hey, I'm helping to bring about tyranny. But guess what? The fact is sometimes we are. And Barry Brownstein's latest essay is a must-read as he describes how individuals enable tyranny. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. I strongly recommend you sign up for their emails. You will get fantastic reading material in your email inbox. I believe they, I think they send out updates seven days a week. And, and there's always something good and enlightening to read. Now, Barry says, I think it's, it is easy, rather, he says, to think the roots of tyranny lie outside of ourselves. But he says, perhaps we're looking too far away. He says, in Milan Kundera's novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, a Czech refugee living in Paris joins a protest march against the 1968 Soviet invasion of her homeland. To her surprise, the refugee could not bring herself to shout with the other protesters and soon left the rally. Now, her French friends couldn't understand her reluctance. The refugee silently mused that her friends could never understand that behind communism, fascism, behind all the occupations and invasions, lurks a more basic, pervasive evil, evil rather, and that the image of that evil was a parade of people marching by with raised fists and shouting identical syllables in unison. So Kundera warns, beware of groups marching in lockstep, even for a seemingly good cause. That sounds like good advice. Barry Brownstein goes on to say, in On Liberty, John Stuart Mill pointed us in a similar direction when he observed a tyranny as terrible as any imposed by public authorities. Mill called it the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling. Mill described the tendency of society to impose, by means other than civil penalties, its own ideas and practices as rules of conduct on those who dissent from them. Mill counseled individual independence protected from encroachment from the tyranny of the majority, is as indispensable to a good condition of human affairs as protection against political despotism. And the tyranny of societal mandates, Mill warned, can be more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since it leaves fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul itself. Now, On Liberty was published in 1859. Sadly, the tendency Mill described is all too common among individuals living in 2023 
who believe their feelings are better than reasons and render reasons unnecessary. Barry Brownstein says often such feelings are based on the prevailing orthodoxy disseminated by the New York Times, NPR, and other such media outlets. Worse, feelings-driven individuals up the ante and demand others conform. Mill explained, the practical principle which guides them to their opinions on the regulation of human conduct is the feeling in each person's mind that everybody should be required to act as he and those with whom he sympathizes would like them to act. Now, others may not may share your feelings and preferences, yet Mill reasoned, even when shared, individual preferences are not elevated to a guide for living for others. Mill put it this way, No one indeed acknowledges to himself that his standard of judgment is his own liking, but an opinion on a point of conduct not supported by reasons can only count as one's, one person's preference. And if the reasons when given are a mere appeal to a similar preference felt by other people, it is still only many people's liking instead of one. So here's Mill's bottom line. The only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized society against his will is to prevent harm to others. Your feelings, your opinions, your sense of what is good for you, your sense of what will make you happier is not a sufficient warrant to interfere with the individual sovereignty of anybody else. Mill was unequivocal about the wrongness of silencing dissenting voices. He said, if all mankind minus one were of one opinion, and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. That's quite a gem of wisdom, by the way. That's one you might want to file away. Now, Barry Brownstein says there has never been a dystopian novel or totalitarian society where freedom of speech was not suppressed. And the haunting question is, why do so many enable totalitarians by demanding others conform to their personal feelings? Mill taught us how to resign as an enabler of tyranny. Our feelings about an issue, no matter how widely shared, are never justification for coercing others or censoring competing points of view. Mill wrote, all silencing of of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. He argued that suppressors of other views have no authority to decide the question for all mankind and to exclude every other person from the means of judging. To refuse a hearing to an opinion because they are sure that it is false is to assume that their certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. Those who believe they should impose their opinions on others are probably not reading this essay. In fact, he says among them are people who act as if they are infallible. Hearing Mill's arguments, some readers may see they silence themselves, believing their opinions are socially unacceptable. When we remain silent, he says, we co-create collective illusions, which Todd Rose wrote are social lies occurring in situations where a majority of individuals in a group privately reject a particular opinion, but they go along with it because they incorrectly assume that most other people accept it. Rose explained, we often conform because we're afraid of being embarrassed. Our stress levels rise at the thought of being mocked or viewed as incompetent, and when that happens, the fear-based part of the brain takes over. The choice to remain silent, to self-censor, is connected to the erroneous belief that by going along with the majority, our personal responsibility for our decisions is diffused, making it easier to bear mistakes. He says a person who values liberty understands the high cost of assuaging feelings by eschewing responsibility. 
So, for example, Václav Havel was a Czech playwright, dissident, and the first president of Czechoslovakia after the fall of communism. In his essay, The Power of the Powerless, Havel explored the dynamics of mindlessly going along with prevailing sentiments. A grocery manager places in his shop window a sign, Workers of the World Unite! Havel revealed the manager placed the sign not out of real support of the slogan, but to avoid trouble and to get along in life. No big deal, the manager may think. It's one of the thousands of deals that guarantee me a relatively tranquil life in harmony with society. Havel's shop manager hopes his sign signals, I am obedient, and therefore I have the right to be left in peace. Just as an aside, does that not also kind of strike your mind as uh, masks? People who wore masks just to, well, you know, it's easier than trying to fight everybody. Might have been a mistake. Anyway, Barry Brownstein says, Havel wrote in his, wrote his essay in 1978. Could Havel have imagined that virtue signaling would be the norm in the West in 2023? Had the sign read, I am afraid and therefore unquestioningly obedient, Havel reasoned, the grocer would not, have e- would not eagerly dis- degrade his dignity by signaling his fear. Ideology, Havel wrote, is a specious way of relating to the world. It offers human beings the illusion of an identity of dignity and of morality, while making it easier for them to part with them. Havel revealed a purpose in adopting an ideology you do not believe in. You can live under the illusion that the system is in harmony with the human order and the order of the universe. In fact, Havel called this the post-totalitarian system, filled with hypocrisy and lies in which the lack of free expression is claimed to be the highest form of freedom. So Havel was clear. To prop up hypocrisy and lies, we must behave as though we believe the lies. Individuals, he wrote, confirm the system, fulfill the system, make the system, are the system. Havel kindled hope as he ended his essay. The real question is whether the brighter future is really always so distant. What if, on the contrary, it has been here for a long time already, and only our own blindness and weakness has prevented us from seeing it around us and within us, and kept us from developing it. Mill, Havel, and Kundera all point us to a terrible truth. Our moral weakness, desire to evade responsibility, and illusion that the majority makes right have led us down the slippery slope of forfeiting our freedom. So how do we respond to those uh, working to undermine human rights? You ready for this? The solution is simple, says Barry Brownstein, but it's not without personal costs. Stop lying. Stop degrading yourself, stop pretending to believe what you don't, and resign from the role as an enabler of tyranny. This is an essay that I would encourage you not only to read, but maybe reread a couple of times. There's a lot of meat on this bone, and it is, it's great stuff. It makes me think about Solzhenitsyn's great essay about live not the lie. How many people are willing to live a lie just because, well, it's easier than, you know, saying what I really think. And, you know, otherwise people would call me out and somebody would want to argue and probably call me names and so forth. On a totally unrelated note, if you uh, caught any of the footage of the Miss Universe pageant over the weekend, you'll see a prime opportunity where people are given the opportunity to pretend to believe something that they don't and go along with it because they really don't want to make waves. I think the answer is very simple. Don't be that person. Be true. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's our final segment, which means i got to pack a lot into a very short time here, but got three articles that I'd really like to bring to your attention. And uh, the first one is uh, from the wonderful Paul Rosenberg. Now, I know people are skeptical. A lot of my friends, especially my older friends, you know, folks who've been around the block a time or two, are really skeptical, skeptical about cryptocurrency. I have concerns, but I don't have as much skepticism as I once had, simply because I understand that the blockchain technology really offers a way to cut out a lot of bureaucratic uh, middleman type of chicanery. In fact, it really offers a place where, where government is not allowed to go. And can you think of very many areas in our lives where that's possible? So naturally, that means the, the systems that be, the powers that be, they don't like cryptocurrency. They don't like the idea of you having real financial privacy. In fact, I believe this is one of the driving reasons why you are going to see in the very near future a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, implemented. And they must, of course, outlaw any competing cryptocurrency. In the same way that our legal tender laws outlaw anything but the fiat currency of the current regime. Well, Paul Rosenberg points out that crypto mining is one of the areas that's under attack. And they're, they're saying it's because of environmental concerns. Maybe you've heard about this. Well, you know, it takes an awful lot of electricity to mine crypto. And if you don't understand the process exactly, it's okay. I don't either. But the truth is, people who are mining cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin, need a fair amount of computing power, which requires a fair amount of energy in order to do this. And so this has people coming at it from an environmental angle. Well, you know, of course, it uses so much electricity, and that, of course, contributes to climate change. And, and uh, Paul points out here, you can actually substitute the word electricity for carbon, by the way, because the folks who are, who are trying to seize control, not just of the monetary system, but of everything that they can, they change words whenever it suits them. That's why they moved from global warming to climate change, for example. So when you hear someone say, well, Bitcoin isn't environmentally friendly, he says, well, let's take a look at electricity. And he says, the first thing you'll need to know is if you want to do something about electrical loads, loads being things that demand electricity, anything from a light bulb to a giant electrical motor, the first place you're going to have to start is air conditioning. Far, far more electricity is used for cooling than it is for crypto mining. So... Any campaign about decarbonizing or protecting the environment by lessening, you know, our desire for electricity that ignores air conditioning is a fraud. Because there are gross inefficiencies when it comes to when air conditioning is needed. And he says, in fact, if somebody comes to you and says, well, you know, crypto mining is a threat and you're a bad person if you support it. You know, think of the terawatts of energy that it uses. He says, ask them this question. How does that compare to the air conditioning load? See if they can answer the question. And then you can ask them, what about the gross inefficiencies arising from the seasonality of air conditioning load requiring utilities to maintain supplemental generating facilities? And Paul says they won't answer your question because they can't. Though they may do the political thing and answer a question you didn't ask. So the bottom line of what he's pointing out here, and again, this is a guy who really knows. He has been on the forefront of crypto since it was just an idea. I trust what he is saying here. He says, you should know that crypto mining is a nice, steady, continuous load. In other words, it's the kind of thing power companies thrive on. And what's tough for power utilities 
is electrical demands that change massively. Air conditioning is a perfect example. These loads only hit them for a few months out of the year, mostly for half a day, and even then, not every day. So they have to build special generating stations in order to handle them, which generate those generating stations sometimes sit idle, and it's tremendously expensive. Crypto mining loads, on the other hand, they're very consistent, 24 hours a day, 365 a year. Now, he's, he says, let me be really clear here. I don't want to get rid of air conditioning either. He's just pointing out that the people who are, are trying to say, well, this is a threat to the environment. It's a threat. We gotta, we've got to reduce the carbon, you know, in order to, to uh, make things work. He says they're, just, they're not being honest. And if someone comes to you and says, well, you know, we, we need to tax crypto, for instance, to save the planet. What they're really talking about is capturing control of Bitcoin. They just can't say it because too many people already hold Bitcoin. And he says, the, with Bitcoin out of the way, the powers that be would then move on to central bank digital currencies, with which they can and will control everything you buy and sell. You can call me overly dramatic, he says, but I've been watching this for a long time. He says, if you want to understand what CBDCs are, think of what was done to the Canadian truckers, then multiply it by 20. So if you hear talk along these lines, his suggestion is, ask this question. How come you're not addressing air conditioning? It's a far bigger use of electricity. And if carbon really is going to kill us and destroy our planet, then they've got to get rid of air conditioning. Personally, I think he's, he's zeroed in on, on the key here. This is, this is about bringing a central bank digital currency into existence. China already has implemented one. They banned Bitcoin mining. They've got their CBDC and they're either allowing or forbidding travel based on your social credit score, meaning if you obey the party, well, you can go where you wish. If you don't, you can't buy a ticket because your money simply doesn't work. And again, think about the Canadian truckers. What happened to their bank accounts being shut down or seized on the whim of a politician? That's where taxing Bitcoin leads. And Paul Rosenberg warns controllers want control and Bitcoin stands in their way. So, Tuck that away in the back of your mind, he says, even if you think I'm being dramatic. I love that he allows for the fact that, hey, I understand some people are going to think this is just way too much. But I'm telling you, this, this guy has some clarity. I'm not saying you better believe what he says. I'm just saying he makes a lot of sense. And, he, and, and part of what makes him credible to me is the fact that he allows for, well, you know, maybe I am just being dramatic here. Maybe, maybe you're not going to agree. You don't see that kind of humility from people who are in, intent on imposing themselves on others. The certainty, the certitude of, you know, I'm absolutely certain. That just doesn't come through with him, which is why I like to read him. Okay, two other quick articles. Some solutions seem too simple to be true. For instance, a return to basic moral and ethical principles being vital to the survival of a healthy society. Well, I've got just such an article for your consideration. Oldis Sprogus, that's, uh, by the way, a writer I've not heard of before I found this article, spells out how that simple truth applies to our society today. Honestly, a return to basic moral and ethical principles. Now, you have to understand, what Oldis Sprogus is talking about here is not about, uh, we've got to do it from the top down, we need a good, you know, righteous president or something. This is going to start on the individual level. Okay, it's got to start from the bottom up, meaning from the individuals. And when enough individuals are serious about getting their basic moral and ethical principles right, 
you will see it reflected in the rest of society. So just want to throw that caveat in there. It's not about we're going to improve everybody else and get them, you know, on the right path morally. It's going to start with we will improve ourselves first. And finally, last but not least, I want you to check out an article I'm including. This is from the wonderful Lawrence W. Reed. One of the greatest privileges of my life was a few years ago to get to work with and produce Larry Reed's weekly podcast in which uh, he he was working for the Foundation for Economic Education at that time. I believe he's the, the president emeritus at this time. But this is a good man who has done so much good in the cause of freedom and uh, free market economics and educating people and just... Anyway, if you haven't read Larry's stuff, it would be worth your time. He is truly a great human being. And his article is called Why Heroes Matter and Now More Than Ever. This is kind of tying back into what I started out with in the, in the very first part of, of this episode. You can find heroes of, ever, of character in every country's history. But Larry Reed says at times it seems that we've forgotten more of them than we're producing. And he walks you through what it means to have heroes, the the effect that heroes can have, even on societies that are fairly far down the rabbit hole. He gives you some great examples. I actually have his book, Real Heroes, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. And he profiles dozens of men and women from Marcus Tullius Cicero of ancient Rome to Anne Hutchinson of colonial New England to Major League Baseball star Roberto Clemente. And he shows how each one of these people rose above circumstance to display admirable qualities, proving that one man or one woman can make the world a better place by speaking truth to power, adhering to sound principles against the winds of prevailing custom, or by simply being a good person who takes charge of his life and offers a sterling example to others. Now, there's a reason that I'm wrapping up with this particular article, and that is because, again, I want you to consider that if we are not producing enough heroes at this moment... Maybe that means you're supposed to step up and be one of them yourself. Remember that call to the hero's journey? If you've made it this far through this episode with me, you've probably heard the call at some level. I want to urge you to answer that call. Run with that call. Be the hero that you were born to be. This is The Brian Hyde Show.